Hi, thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. This week's episode is part two of the Feeney family murders. If you have not listened to part one, please do that first. It's the episode right before this, and if you don't, you'll have no idea what's going on. Real quick, if you want to support this podcast, please consider joining my Patreon. You get one and a half to two hours of bonus content every month for the price of a coffee. Not a big fancy Starbucks coffee either, those are way too expensive. My Patreon is just $5. So this is a quick recap for those who have been waiting over a week for part two. Sorry about that. If you don't need a recap, just skip a minute ahead. So on the morning of February 27th, 1995, three members of the Feeney family were found murdered in their beds in the town of Springfield, Missouri. 36-year-old Cheryl, 6-year-old Tyler, and 18-month-old Jennifer. The husband and father, John Feeney, was 90 miles away at a teacher's conference when the bodies were discovered. The medical examiner believed that they were killed in the late night hours of the 25th and that possibly stretched into the very early morning hours of the 26th. After over a year of investigation, a grand jury indicted John Feeney on three counts of first-degree murder. Before the trial began on September 27, 1996, the prosecution's lead witness basically tells everyone in Greene County that he messed up the investigation. His name is Ron Gann, and he goes from being the state's lead witness, the person who was going to guarantee a guilty verdict for John Feeney, to not being a witness at all in the trial. Also, I didn't mention this in the last episode specifically, and it bothered me, so I'm going to say it now. John Feeney pleaded not guilty to the murder charges, obviously, and after his arrest on April 22nd, the judge denied bond. So, up until he's allowed to sit in a courtroom for his trial, Feeney is sitting in a jail cell. And after each day in court, he's going back to that jail cell. Another quick note, shortly after Feeney's arrest, his home was also vandalized. So, his family moved all of his furniture and belongings out to a storage unit for safekeeping. So, let's brush over where we left off specifically in the last episode. We ended on the first day of trial. You heard Teresa Ballinger and the deputy's testimony who were the first people on the scene. And you also heard a little bit of the prosecution and defense's openings. Day one of the trial was Friday, September 27th. And now we're going to jump into day two, which is Saturday, September 28th. And to set the scene a little bit, this is taking place on the third floor of the Greene County Judicial Courts building. Prosecutors introduced 135 pieces of evidence, including a large section of the wall from the Feeney's bedroom. This 5 foot by 10 foot section of wall was literally hauled into the courtroom so the jury could see it with their own eyes. On that wall, the killer had written die, bit, spelled B-I-T, and a strange cryptic symbol. The Springfield newsleader described it as what looks like two interlocked M's with a V underneath. Of these 135 pieces of evidence, 90 were photographs from the crime scene that include graphic close-ups of the victims. Jury members were required to look at every single one and pass them among one another. John Feeney and his attorneys were showed the images as well. Feeney reportedly wept at the sight of these. 
After these images are shown, a videotape of the crime scene being walked through is played in the courtroom. It's 20 minutes long and has no audio. A reporter stated that John Feeney seemed inconsolable and cried for several long moments after the video was done. Three police officers took the stand this day. They were, of course, witnesses called by the prosecution, and they basically just presented their findings and why they believe John Feeney is the killer. The lead defense attorney, Sean Askinosi, made sure to cross-examine all of them, though, and point out holes in their overall investigation. And those holes are things that detectives fail to do. Here are the things that Askinosi pointed out. Investigators didn't take fingerprints from the headboard of Tyler's bed or from Jennifer's crib. They didn't check for blood in the drains of the house. If the killer washed their hands after what they did, blood would have been found there. But they didn't even check. Before I finish this list of things investigators missed, according to Askinosi, we need to talk about Feeney's back door. At first, a diagram made by the Springfield newsleader makes it seem like this back door led directly into the kitchen and dining room of the Feeney home. However, two months later, they refer to the door as leading to a walkout basement. So we're going to go with the latter. This basement door is what investigators believed that the killer or killers broke in through because the door was reportedly splintered and it looked as if it was pried open. But once they looked closer, they started to notice some things. A highway patrolman is quoted saying that the door did not have the appearance of being pried open. On this door was a strike plate, where the latch connects. If an intruder was trying to break in, they would have ripped the screws out of this latch plate in the process. But according to the officer, it appears as if someone unscrewed them from the latch plate, which can only be done if the door is already open. There were pry marks around the doorknob's lock, but there were apparently no marks around the deadbolt lock, which I guess prosecutors pointed out because usually people would lock their deadbolt because the doorknob lock is not as trustworthy. But even if this scene was staged and the killer had actually entered through the front door with a key, to ask a nosy, this is not an excuse to not collect evidence. Under cross-examination, he got officers to admit that they didn't vacuum the rug around the rear basement door, the door the killers apparently broke in through. The killer could have dropped hair, DNA, or any kind of evidence while they were prying open the door. Detectives also didn't attempt to collect fingerprints from the door's jam. And I didn't know what part of the door that technically is, so here's the definition if you are clueless like me. A door jam is one of the posts which sit on either side of the door, forming vertical portions of the doorframe. Which sounds to me like it's just the side of the doorframes. But either way, this was the area that the killers were supposedly touching all over to break in, and no one collected fingerprints from that area. One of the last things Askinosi criticized this day was the fact that investigators did not take fingerprints from Cheryl's car keys. And let's get into this real quick because I didn't talk about this in part one at all. Cheryl's 1992 Ford Taurus was found in the Feeney's garage on the morning of the murders. The trunk was apparently full of household items. Its front hood was propped open, and a battery charger was attached to the car's battery. 
It's been reported that the car's battery wasn't actually dead, which doesn't explain why anyone would try to charge the battery in the first place, especially if the car was only three years old at the time. Either way, the car was clearly messed with, and police didn't take fingerprints from the car's very own keys. One investigator also mistakenly added his own prints to the crime scene. Askinosi pointed out that the killers had left behind what appeared to be two sets of footprints in the garage. He asked the investigator how it got there, even though Askinosi already knew how two sets of prints got there. He just wanted to cast doubt on the ability of the investigators. This is how the Springfield newsleader wrote about Lieutenant John Preen's response to Askinosi while on the witness stand. Quote, Preen said somewhat sheepishly that one set of prints in the garage belonged to him. He accidentally stepped in paint while taking photographs. End quote. So what about the other pair of footprints? The ones that weren't the investigators. The police don't know who they belong to but they do know it wasn't John Feeney's shoe prints, because he wore a size 12, and apparently these were much smaller. I don't have this in my script, but I think I remember reading that the prints were a size 9.5, but take that with a grain of salt, and I don't even know if that was a men's or women's size 9.5. So now you've heard the majority of day 1 and 2 in the Feeney murder trial. On Sunday, the court took a break, then, that coming Monday, September the 30th, the trial resumed. To paint a picture of what the coming trial will look like, I want to read you all this section of the Springfield Newsletter, and it's written by Ron Davis. Ron Davis was in the courtroom every day, so I think his depiction of the scene is pretty reliable. Through crime scene photographs and arid recitations of police officers, the John Feeney jury knows how much of what happened inside the house at 1993 West Nottingham Street. They have seen the gore that accompanies the bludgeoning of a woman and her son and the strangulation of a baby girl. This week, prosecutors will try to show why the carnage happened and why they think John Feeney did it. The focus of the state's case now is expected to shift to Feeney's alleged bad character, his extramarital affairs, his reported aloofness toward his family. In this fashion, prosecutors hope to convince the jury that Feeney was capable of killing his wife, Cheryl, and their children, Tyler and Jennifer. But Feeney's lawyers have done plenty in the first part of the state's case to inject reasonable doubt. Such doggedness is sure to continue when testimony resumes today at the Greene County Judicial Court's facility. Lead prosecutor Daryl Moore, in his opening statement, hinted that greed, selfishness, and bizarre taste for the occult are the reasons why Feeney killed his family. End quote. Ron goes on to list Moore's reasoning as to why Feeney killed his family. Number one, Feeney had $400,000 worth of life insurance on Cheryl. Number two, Feeney was tired of being married, tired of being a parent, and eager to be single. Number three, Feeney was familiar with a role-playing game about vampires and was able to slip into character to wipe out his family. Ron Davis then goes on to talk about Feeney's defense team and the way they've been arguing over the first two days of trial. Quote, 
Lead defender Sean Askinosi, however, attacked the first prone of Moore's prosecution through two days of cross-examination. John Feeney had no reason to kill for money, Askinosi noted. The family had plenty of cash and very few debts. He got one of the top police investigators in the case to admit this. The chief of detectives for Greene County, Tom Thorson, said during depositions that there didn't seem to be anything significant about the Feeney's finances prior to February 1995 when the killings occurred. Thorson admitted during his deposition that the Feeney's were actually quite well off. This is a list of what their finances looked like prior to the murders. Their average checking account balance was $7,800. Their savings account balance average was $25,700. Their retirement fund was more than $30,000. And on top of that, they had more than $14,000 in available credit. The Feenies apparently weren't spending a ton of money either. Askinosi argued that they were more than financially stable, which, if the jury believed this, completely wrecked the argument that Feeney killed his family for money. Monday, September 30th, was the third day of trial. The prosecution brought in four women to testify about John Feeney's affairs with them. These are the highlights of their testimony according to the newsletter, because unfortunately, any sort of transcript is not available to the public. Kimberly Ray, a teacher at Pepkin Middle School, went first. She claimed she had sex with John Feeney on many occasions from 1990 to 1991. According to her, Feeney used a form of mind control to lure her into bed, and whenever she told Feeney she felt guilty, he told her to just erase her memory. Kimberly stated that she broke off the relationship because, quote, I felt like I needed to totally get away from any influence he had on me. On the witness stand, she also acknowledged that she had sex with John and two other men on a boat at the Lake of the Ozarks. And this happened not during the 1995 conference, but at an earlier one. Kimberly had also only told her husband about the several affairs just a few days before she took the stand. I found a direct quote from her while she was on the stand, and I'm not sure of the specific context but I think it alludes to Kimberly feeling guilty about the affair and alleging that Feeney didn't feel that guilt. I'll let you decide, though. This is the quote. He said Father's Day was for fathers to do what they wanted to do. And we'll go deeper into this mind control theory that Kimberly mentioned and that the prosecution uses against John, but for now, let's get through John Feeney's mistresses. I do want to note also that Kimberly was basically fired from her teaching job after this trial because it came out that she was having a relationship with a student. The details of that student, like their age and everything like that, aren't in the article, but she was working at a middle school, so either way, it's extremely concerning. It seems like her only punishment was to hand in her teaching license, and it was also mentioned that she had resigned from a school district prior to this incident, but the reason for that was unknown. But considering all of this, it was probably not for a good reason. On to the second mistress. Um, her name is Michelle, and she was an educational consultant. She told the jury her fling with Feeney happened for about five months in 1991, the same year as Kimberly. 
She and Feeney met through weekly sand volleyball games, and things went on from there. Michelle was asked if Feeney was a violent person, to which she responded that she had never seen him display violence towards anyone. Michelle also informed the court that she told her husband about the affair a couple weeks ago. The third witness-slash-mistress wasn't shown on court cameras because the judge disallowed it. We don't know her name, but we know that she's an unmarried middle school teacher in Springfield. She said it was Feeney's idea to start the fling, and apparently that fling ended after they had intercourse just one time in 1992. This woman told the court that John was not abusive, and he made an effort to talk about his son, Tyler. When Cheryl was pregnant with Jennifer, the woman said John seemed excited about the pregnancy and to have another child. The fourth mistress is a woman named Pam who had intimate relations with John, but they never had intercourse. Pam said this relationship happened on at least three separate occasions in the spring and fall of 1994, and all these incidents happened when they were both at teachers' conferences. When asked, Pam stated that Feeney talked about his wife and children. She even asked him at one point if he was unhappy in his marriage or life, and if he would ever consider divorcing Cheryl. Feeney told her that he would never divorce Cheryl. And it's unknown if Feeney believed that because of his very deep religious roots, or if he genuinely wanted his marriage with Cheryl to prosper. The prosecution made the jury think that Pam was going to show Feeney as some sort of monster, but the only aspect of her testimony that is a little strange is this. The state asked if there was anything Feeney said or did that seemed odd. Pam thought about it for a little while and then responded, He said there was something, something he should have known about Cheryl before they got married, that I guess put a strain on their relationship. Pam was never told what that something was that puts such a strain on their relationship. This woman, Pam, is also the person who had dinner with Feeney the night before his family was murdered. During the prosecution's opening statement, they said that Pam was expecting dinner and a sexual encounter, and that she was surprised when Feeney said he had a headache and just dropped her off and then went back to his room. However, when the prosecution asked about that encounter, Pam told the jury that she wasn't expecting sex and that their relationship had pretty much terminated the previous fall. That was the conclusion of the four women testifying about their relationships with Feeney. And this was just one angle the prosecution was taking to try and convince the jury that Feeney wanted to kill his family so that he could be single and not deal with child support, divorce, etc. Now, let's get into this mind control theory that was introduced by one of John's mistresses. Prosecutors believed that Feeney was really into mind control theory and used this to manipulate others, as well as justify murdering his family. Specifically, lead prosecutor Daryl Moore said that Feeney used a theory created by William Glasser, Glasser was an American psychiatrist and very progressive at this time. He basically used his knowledge to write self-help books that concern work environments, school environments, personal transformation, and more. The book that the prosecution refers to was published in 1985 by Glasser. It's titled Control Theory, A New Explanation of How We Control Our Lives. 
His books weren't a how-to on controlling others. It was a self-help book about taking control of your own thoughts so you can prosper in life, and ways in which you can go about doing that. But prosecutors believed, or at least wanted the jury to believe, that Feeney was taking aspects of Glasser's teachings and using it against others to manipulate them. And that's all I really know about this idea of mind control being pushed in the courtroom, and Kimberly was really the only person to claim that Feeney was using it against her. Several other witnesses were brought to the stand on this third day of trial, including a family friend, a male teacher, and a former student. A woman named Angela had known Feeney for more than a decade. She first met Feeney through her husband, who was also a science teacher. She, her husband, and both John and Cheryl played volleyball weekly at a local bar. Both couples eventually had children and continued to hang out but center their social time around the kids. According to Angela, though, Feeney never wanted any kids. She claimed John never interacted with his son Tyler, and that, quote, it was very visible, there was no interaction, there was a distance. Another person who painted Feeney as a shady character was a former Glendale High School student. Jill and two of her friends took a trip with Feeney and three of his friends one weekend to watch a football game in Columbia. The men apparently paid for all of their expenses, including their hotel room. Jill said there was no sex involved in this trip. However, at one point Feeney called Jill's hotel room to see if the girls were ready to go to the game. That's when Feeney asked Jill if they were naked. On this trip, Jill recalled also asking Feeney about his newborn daughter. Apparently, he became angry and blurted out, You want to see a damn picture? He then passed around the picture to the group. And I wasn't sure about when this trip exactly occurred, but because Jennifer had just been born, it's presumably around the fall of 1993. The last witness I'm going to talk about before we head into day four of Feeney's murder trial is a Glendale High School science teacher named Fred. The prosecution used him to cast doubt that Feeney rose early the morning after his family was murdered. On February 26, 1995, John said he rose before his morning wake-up call was scheduled and got breakfast at a fast-food joint. He even had a receipt to prove it. But according to Fred, John Feeney was not an early riser. There were a handful of times over the past seven years where John would oversleep and Fred was forced to unlock his classroom door for his students. And that's about it for day three, so let's go to day four. Tuesday, October 1st. Prosecutors focus mainly on three things this day. Feeney's vampire role-playing game, life insurance, and John Feeney's character. 18 witnesses testified this day, but let's start with the vampire theory. John Feeney allegedly played a tabletop role-playing game called Vampire the Masquerade. The best way I can describe this game is think of Dungeons and Dragons. If you don't know what D&D is, it's the game the kids play in Stranger Things. Basically, you just design a character and assume the character's role, but it's all about improv and imagination. In 1996, games such as this and anyone who was playing them was still being viewed as demonic and satanic. And even I know some people who still think that way. So, of course, this satanic panic made its way into a case where a family was brutally murdered, and there's no physical evidence pointing to anyone. 
I can't find a lot of the prosecutor's own words about this theory, but I did find a section in the Springfield newspaper explaining their argument. On the title page of Vampire the Masquerade playbook are the words, By becoming a monster, one learns what it is to be human. Journalist Robert Keyes quoted these words and wrote that the Greene County prosecutors used them and wanted them to symbolize their case against John Feeney, and that these words somehow asserted that Feeney was a man who took role-playing games to the extreme and thus decided to murder his family. Any slight chance of the jury believing this theory was squashed, though, when a man who played role-playing games with Feeney testified on the stand. Matt Farley owned a hobby store and had been friends with Feeney for two decades. He said that when he and Feeney played these tabletop role-playing games, Feeney's character was always a peacekeeper. And quote, We called him a goody-two-shoes. He usually played a lawful elf. This testimony made the prosecution's argument completely invalid. Now let's move on to the testimony from experts and friends of John. On the comforter of the Feeney's bed, police found semen and ultimately determined it was John Feeney's. And according to the state, Cheryl washed the bedsheets every Saturday. Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer were killed in the early morning hours of Sunday. So the state was trying to assert that because Feeney's semen was still on the bed, that meant in their minds that Cheryl had washed the sheets and then Feeney returned, left traces of semen behind, murdered his family, and then left. Obviously, this was a very weak argument because the more likely scenario is that a woman who was taking care of two young kids simply didn't have time to wash the sheets. Bob and Steve were one of the first people to talk to Feeney when he woke on the morning of February 26th. At this point, Feeney's family was deceased, so the state questioned them on the stand about Feeney's behavior beforehand. Obviously, if John was acting weird before he was told his family was killed, that would be a red flag to the jury. However, this backfired for the prosecution because Bob said he seemed like his normal self, the same old John he'd always knew. Steve went back with John to Springfield directly after they learned about the murders, and he was right by Feeney's side. He told the jury that John Feeney was crying and totally removed, and that he kept saying, this can't be, this can't be. Both Steve and Bob had known Feeney for over 20 years, and they didn't see anything strange about his behavior. This was another win for the defense team, and the prosecution hadn't even rested their case yet. More Highway Patrol officers testified on Tuesday as well. Officer John Preen made an appearance in court once again to show the jury a pair of gloves. These gloves were taken from the garage in the Feeney home. Directly after this, Preen showed fibers taken from the floor of Feeney's Mustang. And this doesn't come to a head on this day of trial, but just keep in mind that experts are going to testify about whether or not these fibers found in the gloves match the fibers taken from John's car. On this day, Askinosi also cross-examines a highway patrol sergeant who served a search warrant on Feeney within weeks of his family's murder. Sergeant Duane obtained a blood sample from Feeney because they had just been informed that six-year-old Tyler Feeney tested positive for hepatitis B. The sergeant expected Feeney to test positive for the virus as well, but he didn't. Askinosi asked the officer if anyone else was tested for hepatitis B, to which the officer responded, no. But this cross-examination was actually a lot more dramatic than that, and I have some quotes. Askinosi asked, How many people did you test? 
the officer responded. Through the course of this investigation, and before he could finish, Askinosi cuts him off and says, Did you test any other people? The officer responds, There was nothing to indicate. Askinosi cuts him off again and asks, Did you test other people, yes or no? That's when the officer finally says flat out, no. And this looks very bad to the jury because it's clear that in the very early stages of the investigation, they had determined that Feeney had not given his son hepatitis B, but they continued to heavily pursue him and not test anyone else. In the later part of the trial, the state introduced Feeney's life insurance policies into evidence. There were four different life insurance policies placed on Cheryl before her death. The first agent is from Prudential. He states that there's a policy on Cheryl in case of accidental death. This policy is worth $31,000 and was actually purchased in 1977 by Cheryl's own parents. This policy was then transferred to Feeney in 1981 when they were married. The agent also made it known that Feeney may have not even known about the policy because they were the ones to contact him about it after her death. A United Life agent took the stand next and told the jury that Cheryl had a $75,000 policy. Additionally, from that same company, Tyler and Jennifer each had $10,000 in life insurance. United Life actually did its own investigation and found out that John Feeney was not responsible for his family's murders. So, they paid him $101,000 plus interest. Through Cheryl's employer, she was given a specific kind of life insurance. If she were to die violently, Feeney would be given $158,000. This insurance was not purchased by Feeney. He is also entitled to Cheryl's pension of $99 a month, but that doesn't start until November 1st of next year, 2024. The only life insurance policy that made police suspicious is the one that Feeney purchased from USAA. On September 29th, 1994, he bought policies for both he and Cheryl, each for the amount of $250,000. This was bought just four months before the murders. The state believed Feeney may have forged Cheryl's signatures on this policy, and they would bring in two experts the following day to give their opinions. So with that, let us jump into day five of the murder trial. Wednesday, October 2nd was certainly the strongest day for the state but it was filled with experts saying a lot of things like may have and possibly. Two handwriting experts said that Cheryl Feeney probably didn't sign the applications for her $250,000 life insurance. And one of them testified that John may have been the one to paint the cryptic message on the bedroom wall left behind by the killers. However, both experts could not say with certainty that Feeney forged the signature or that he painted the cryptic message. Additionally, one state expert made it known that he was confident, though, that Cheryl filled out a portion of this life insurance. This testimony was really boring for the jury and took about three hours, according to reports. Now we're going to move on to the fibers and hair evidence. A criminologist testified about fibers found on the comforter of Feeney's bed and inside a brown leather work glove from the garage. When compared to fibers from the floor of Feeney's Mustang, they all shared similar physical characteristics. The fibers found on Cheryl were red and made of a nylon type of material. The criminologist said these fibers and their comparisons were largely meaningless, 
because Feeney owned the gloves and lived in his own home, so of course there's going to be evidence he was there. This expert specifically told the jury he didn't make a police report on the fibers because it wasn't significant, and quote, we couldn't use them to link Feeney to the crime. Askinosi cross-examined this expert and brought up evidence that points to an unidentified person as being the true killer. Feeney's brake pedal and accelerator were scraped and analyzed, presumably to see if Feeney had stepped in the paint or blood and then driven his vehicle. That testing yielded absolutely nothing. Nothing in his car linked him to the scene at all. The hair that was found on Cheryl Feeney was not her husband's. The hair had recently been dyed a reddish brown. And now, when I heard this hair was recently dyed a reddish brown, my mind immediately went to this being the hair from a woman. In addition to that hair, two gray hairs were found in the garage. One was on the paintbrush, and the other was on a piece of cardboard. Objects used to vandalize the Feeney home. Those hairs were sent to a lab in the hopes of getting DNA, but that attempt failed. It's extremely difficult to get DNA from a hair unless there is a root attached. I actually looked into this, though, to see if there was any recent breakthroughs, and there actually was. In an article from the fall of 2019, Dr. Ed Green from the University of California, Santa Cruz, used a technique first applied by researchers extracting DNA from fossilized bones. Dr. Green was able to create his own genotype using one of his own rootless hairs. From there, he was able to determine the identity of two homicide victims that were previously unknown. Although this is really great news, unfortunately, the process is very expensive and is not going to be standard in investigative work anytime soon. The most intense testimony that came out of this day was definitely that of the medical examiner for Greene County. Dr. James Spindler performed an autopsy the day the Feeney's bodies were discovered. And for this part, I'm just going to read what Ron Davis wrote for the Springfield Newsletter. And I just want to caution you all that this is graphic and disturbing. The medical examiner talks about the death of small children, and the prosecutor wants the jury to know how violent it truly was. Quote, Cheryl, 36, suffered 10 blows to her head and face from a rod-shaped object about a half inch in diameter. Two superficial puncture wounds, possibly from a knife, were found on her left cheek. Cheryl had four bruises on her arms. These were defensive wounds, created as Cheryl fought for her life. Tyler, 6, was struck seven times with the same pipe or rod used to kill his mother. Three of the blows were to the head. One blow landed on the right side of Tyler's head. The other strikes hit Tyler's neck, bruising his brainstem and spinal cord. Jennifer, 18 months, died in the slowest fashion. Two pieces of nylon rope, one-eighth inch in diameter, were used to obstruct the jugular veins, and it was by far the slowest type of strangulation. The rope was wrapped tightly around Jennifer's mouth and jaw, cutting off the flow of blood from her brain. End quote. And I want to point out that at first it was believed that Jennifer was strangled by shoelaces, but it was later revealed in court that she was actually strangled with the cords that dangle from the blinds on a window. The prosecutor would also ask Dr. Spindler how long it took for Jennifer to die, and if she was screaming and crying. The medical examiner stated it would have taken several minutes for Jennifer to die, 
and that he was certain she would be struggling. And there really wasn't a reason for the prosecutor to ask this question, other than wanting to make jurors very emotional about this already horrific case. Before we go into the sixth day of trial, I want to read this little blurb from the Springfield newspaper. There's a section called Reader's Letters, where people that are watching the trial can write in and talk about their own opinions. A man named Richard sent in his opinion, and this is what it said. The newspaper titled it, Investigation Aids Defendant. And Richard really slammed the state with this letter. He wrote, quote, I would like to say that I'm not a trial lawyer nor a legal analyst, but from my viewpoint, the best defense for John Feeney has been from the prosecution. Either I have watched too much Perry Mason, or our police investigators do not watch enough. I'm appalled at the lack of attentive detail, and hope that, in the future, we can dedicate more funds towards training for our local investigative groups. October 3rd was the sixth day of trial and the first day for the defense's side to argue their case. The prosecution rested theirs this morning, after a total of 53 witnesses and 210 exhibits were shown. The state's last witness was a woman who said that she saw a red Mustang, just like Feeney's, drive along a scenic avenue and throw a metal pipe out the window. She claimed this happened around 2.30 in the morning on February 26, 1995. Police never searched for this pipe, though, which is very odd. The defense also brought in two witnesses who said they also own the same car and drive that route in the middle of the night. The defense's strongest witness testimony on this day definitely came from Tootie Deeds. Tootie is a neighbor of the Feenies and was interviewed by police the day after the bodies were found. On Sunday, September 26th, Tootie went to church around 11.30 a.m. By this point, Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer were deceased. She drove by the Feeney home and didn't notice anything strange. However, when she returned around 1.30 p.m., she saw something out of the ordinary. The Feeney's garage door was partially open, approximately 12 to 14 inches off the ground. This stuck out to her because the Feeney's never left their garage door open. Hours later, at 5 p.m., Tootie saw that the garage door had been shut tight once again. In the times that this was happening, John Feeney definitely had an alibi. Askinosi told the jury this was evidence that the killer or killers had stayed in the Feeney home for hours after the homicides. On the other hand, the state wanted the jury to believe that John drove 90 miles from the Ozarks, quickly killed his whole family, and staged it as an accident, and then drove back to his hotel, all undetected. A paint expert for the defense also pushed this theory of the killers staying in the house for hours. When police gathered paint evidence, it was still wet at noon on the day their bodies were found. The chemist concluded, that this meant the paint was spilled just seven to nine hours prior to police discovery, meaning Feeney had an alibi for this time gap as well. After 17 witnesses testified about Feeney's good character for the defense, the sixth day of court was over. Friday, October 4th, was the last day of trial before closing arguments for both sides. It's also the day Cheryl Feeney would have celebrated her 37th birthday. This was definitely the shortest day of trial. Only three witnesses were called by the defense to testify. A fingerprint expert testified that prints found on the garage door light bulb didn't belong to John. The bulb may have been unscrewed by the killers, 
but the prince could have also belonged to Sherolfini. According to the state, her body was so decomposed that prints lifted from her were very poor in quality. An insurance salesman took the stand next. He was contacted by Feeney twice in June of 1994. Feeney wanted to know the proper amounts of insurance he needed for his family. The salesman, of course, recommended that Feeney purchase more life insurance and recommended an extra two hundred dollars to $250,000 worth. This was eight months before the murders. Instead of buying from the salesman, Feeney researched on his own through articles and newsletters, then ultimately bought policies with USAA. A public accountant then took the stand to analyze the Feeney family's finances. He stated that they were stable, and more well-off than the average family. He also pointed out that Feeney paid the bills. In theory, if John Feeney was given all the life insurance money, that would be a total of $646,000. In 2022, that would be worth over $1.2 million. Now let's move on to the last day of John Feeney's trial, the judgment we have all been waiting to hear. On October 5th, the prosecution and defense give their closing arguments for nearly four hours. This process is broadcast live on local TV. At 3.55 p.m., the jury starts deliberation. 35 minutes later, they asked for the answering machine tape from the Feeney home. This tape had messages from several people, including John Feeney, who called the day the bodies were found. 20 minutes after this, the jury requested photos from the Feeney's own photo album, as well as, quote-unquote, evidence in relation to the vampire role-playing game. At 5.34 p.m., they requested photos of the wall where the words die and bit were displayed in beige paint. Additionally, they wanted phone records from John Feeney. An hour passed before they asked for the life insurance document with Cheryl's signature. This is the signature the state believed was forged. 45 minutes later, they asked for one final thing, a map of Springfield showing the location of the Feeney home. Two hours went by, and at exactly 9.05 p.m., the jury came back with a verdict. After five hours of deliberation, the jury read a verdict for each count of first-degree murder in the slayings of Cheryl, Tyler, and Jennifer. For each count, their verdict was the same. Not guilty. As soon as the first not guilty verdict was read, Feeney bowed his head and began to cry. Askinosi and the rest of Feeney's defense team held back tears as well and comforted their client. The prosecution, on the other hand, sat motionless and stared ahead. Feeney's parents sobbed because their child wasn't going to be put to death. Cheryl's parents were emotional as well and quickly left the courthouse after the verdict. John Feeney was escorted back to the jail so he could quickly be processed out and released. Feeney was acquitted in the murders. The trial was over, but people still had a lot to say. Feeney was one of those people, and he was interviewed within an hour of his release. He stated, quote, I don't think there is any real way for me to prove myself to those who doubt me. There's an old saying out there, never try to explain yourself. Your enemies won't believe it. Your friends don't need it. I have to say, I never doubted from the moment we rested the case, from the time I went back over to the jail to wait for the verdict. I never doubted it in my heart that the 12 people there were fair. 
they were just going to have to take a little time to sort through all the evidence. This has just been, for me, one continuous nightmare, and I've been waiting to be woken up. Everyone here is pinching me. I still don't hardly believe it. When asked what he was planning on doing now, Feeney responded, I don't even think I know yet. I know today I'll go to church, and after that, we've just got to continue on and try to rebuild. I think I'm more concerned with building bridges back. They were burned before. I don't know exactly how to describe that, except to say there were lots of people who wound up having to take sides in this, and maybe now we can work in harmony a little bit more. Feeney was asked if he wanted to work with the major case squad now, considering he was acquitted and his family's killer was still out there. Feeney said he would be willing to talk to them and open up about his opinions on the case, as well as the opinions of his defense team. But either way, his family was taken from him. And quote, It's still a big, empty spot. Maybe I'm on the way to healing, but I don't know if I ever can. At the courthouse, Feeney's family and friends gathered in the parking lot to pray and thank God for the verdict. At the same time, someone screamed from a van driving by that John Feeney is a murderer. According to Pastor Clarence Feeney, his son was a victim as well. He said John had been killed and murdered by people in the media, and he doubted that John could continue to live in Springfield. He further stated, quote, He can't teach. He can't do the things that were his life. Those have been taken from him. He's been killed. He not only lost a wife and two kids, but he was plucked piece by piece, his own flesh from him, and killed. End quote. Feeney's close relatives and friends were outspoken about their desire for investigators to continue working on the case. As for the family and friends of Cheryl, their world was shattered, because the man they believed was guilty was now walking free. One relative told a reporter this, while sobbing, He did it. We know he did it. Jurors who decided Feeney's fate were interviewed as well. Two of them confirmed that before deliberation, Five jurors believed he was guilty, five believed he was innocent, and two were undecided. This is what juror number 67 had to say, one of four women on the panel. The evidence did point to him, but we did not feel they could place him at the scene of the crime. What we were given was not enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. We know everyone is not going to agree with us, but they didn't see everything we saw. The staged scene was the strongest evidence it still didn't point conclusively to John Feeney. I really do believe there was some strong evidence that someone was involved with that family besides John Feeney. Feeney should consider getting his life on the right track. I sincerely hope he did not slip through the system if he did not commit the crimes. But if he did, in the end, he will pay for it. The night after the verdict was read, prosecutors in the major case squad gave a statement to the media and answered pending questions. The most heartbreaking answer they gave was about the possible continuation of the investigation into the murders. Detectives would not be reopening the case. A spokesman said, There's no information available to us as an investigating agency that suggests we should move in any direction other than what we have. End quote. The day prior to John's acquittal, Daryl Moore received info from Feeney's lawyers about a possible lead. He addressed this at the press conference by saying he wouldn't discuss this information and that he was skeptical about it overall. Specifically, he said, quote, 
I told them we will look at it, but I will tell you quite honestly that it fits in there with consulting psychics or dogs that believe they are psychics, so we're going to look at it, but I do not believe it's going anywhere. This so-called other lead was unknown until a few weeks went by. The quote-unquote tip was a hunch that the killings were the result of witchcraft and the occult. That lead fizzled out quickly. One of the main pieces of evidence that liberated Feeney, according to the jurors, was the fact that he tested negative for hepatitis B. So, who gave six-year-old Tyler Feeney the virus? Investigators wanted the jury to believe that he was sexually abused by Feeney, and that's how it was passed on to him. However, the lead prosecutor would say this in an interview, quote, There is no physical evidence to say Tyler Feeney was sexually abused. Five forensic pathologists looked at it and couldn't render that opinion. Now that you know the outcome of John Feeney's trial, we're going to hop around to notable events that happened after the fact. A little more than a month after the verdict, the parents of Cheryl filed a wrongful death suit against John Feeney. They alleged that John was likely the killer of his family, and therefore was not entitled to the half a million dollars in life insurance. Weeks later, the case was moved to a federal court. Two days after that, they dropped the lawsuit against Feeney, presumably because it was moved to a federal court. In March of the following year, Feeney met with his in-laws to discuss finances. Specifically, he proposed sharing the cost to hire a private investigator to search for the killer or killers. The Hash family said an investigator isn't necessary because they already know who the killer is. They still believed that John Feeney killed their daughter, and their minds hadn't changed when a settlement was reached in August of 97. The details of that settlement are unknown. Flash forward two years, to the four-year anniversary of the Feeney homicide. John Feeney is still living in Springfield, in the same home. He's hired a small group of private investigators, but they have no significant leads at this point, and there's nothing police want to look into. Six years later, in 2005, the Springfield Newsleader covers the 10-year anniversary of the unsolved murders. By this point, John Feeney has sold his home and moved to South America, according to reports. Former Major Case Squad investigator Rita Sanders is reported saying that there was evidence Tyler and Jennifer Feeney had been sodomized. This contradicts the lead prosecutor's own words. She still believes in Feeney's guilt, and is the main highlight of this article. This is what she told the reporter. One of Cheryl's good friends, a nurse, said she often had to work odd hours because John would not let Cheryl work those hours. Several of the other nurses had to cover for her. He didn't want her to work because he'd have to babysit the children. Immediately, my impression was that the suspect was either a family member or someone very close to the family. The family pictures being turned toward the wall Cheryl was covered up. The children had pillows on their faces. If you're going to be callous enough to murder a mom and two children, why cover them up? End quote. Sanders also mentions a theory that wasn't brought up in the media, at least not what I saw. She said, quote, There was a cat in the basement, and he was not allowed to come upstairs because Tyler had allergies. The door to the family room in the basement was shut, and the cat was still there. Whoever committed the crime had to go into that family room, yet the door was shut. Every time we'd open that door, the cat would rush out, and we would have to go get him. 
Why would they close that door? Because they knew the cat would have bolted out. So, because John Feeney was acquitted of the murders, the case file against him are completely confidential. I tried to request it, and that's when I learned that Missouri is a state that closes records in situations such as these, and I think that is one of the key reasons this case is rarely talked about today. So, because of that, I relied heavily on newspaper archives, specifically from the coverage by Springfield Newsleader reporters like Ron Davis and Robert Keyes. Without access to that, I don't know where I would have been able to find info from this case that wasn't so far removed from really close sources. Fox 4 News also covered the case in October of 2021 and even linked video clips from John Feeney's actual trial. So if you want to watch that, it's linked in the description below, and that is the only clips I can find from this trial. By the way, sorry this episode took so long, there was a lot of details I wanted to include. And I had a late start because I went to my sister-in-law's baby shower that was six and a half hours away, one way, for Labor Day weekend. Also, to avoid future weekend conflicts, I think I'm going to move my posting date to Thursdays instead of Tuesdays. So we're going to try that out and see if that works. And before I say goodbye for this week, I want to give a shout out to the new Patreon members that are supporting this podcast. Thank you to John C., Clea Holloway, and Nathaniel Monken. Thank you all so much. We're almost halfway to my goal of 100 patrons, which is really, really cool. Um, Anyways, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to tune in next Thursday for another episode. Next Thursday. Thursdays now. Um, And I hope you have a good morning, evening, or night. Goodbye. Investigators found game sheets from a role-playing game called Vampire of the Masquerade in Feeney's classroom desk at Glendale High School. Prosecutors say Feeney took the vampire game to the extreme and used it to assume the role of a killer and then wiped out his family. Matt Fairley engaged in role-playing games with John Feeney for more than a decade. He says he never saw Feeney play the vampire game and Feeney steered clear of murderer roles. Um, we call him Goody Two-Shoes. He always usually played a elf, a lawful good elf. And most of us, when we play games like this, we shoot the bad guys and ask questions later. John would shoot the guns out of their hands, spank them and make them admit they did it wrong, then take them to jail. Prosecutors continue their courtroom probe with a handful of insurance agents. They testified Feeney could receive as much as $400,000 in insurance money from his family's deaths and damage to his home. One agent testified Feeney exaggerated his claim for the amount of jewelry stolen. And how much of that $18,000 worth of jewelry were you able to substantiate? Through referencing all the above, uh, we were able to substantiate about three dollars to $4,000 in jewelry. Another insurance representative testified Feeney bought a quarter of a million dollars in life insurance for his wife four months before the murders. Prosecutors say they have a handwriting expert who says Cheryl Feeney's signature on that policy may have been forged. In Springfield, Cheryl Matthews, Color 10 Newsbeat. The day began with a look at the murder victims. There's a Mickey Mouse type pillow over the face of Tyler Feeney and uh, this is a photograph I took of his uh, face after I had removed that pillow. The evidence brought John Feeney to tears. Feeney became emotional once again when prosecutors played back the family's answering machine tape. Prosecutors say there's three calls from John Feeney on the answering machine, two on Sunday the 26th, 
On Monday, the 27th, there's nine messages from concerned friends and family members. The 10th call on the machine is from John. Show, show, John, uh, pick up. If anybody's in the house, please pick the phone up. We need to find out what's going on. This is your brother, Doug, Cheryl. What's, what's going on? Please pick up. Prosecutor say Feeney was the last to check on his family because he already knew they were dead. Prosecutors continued unveiling evidence, including the writing on the master bedroom wall that reads, Bit, Die, bloodstains on Tyler Feeney's headboard, paint on the carpet, and footprints found on this piece of cardboard in the garage. A back door with three locks, a doorknob lock, a deadbolt, and a childproof lock. Investigators say pry marks, a strike plate, and screws found on the floor are not consistent with someone trying to break in the house. Prosecutors also showed jurors a picture of one of the murder weapons, a cord from a curtain rod. A cord that is uh, uh, shown in one of the uh, earlier photographs of, uh, of the uh, cord that was around uh, Jennifer Feeney's neck. Testimony resumes Monday. In Springfield, Cheryl Matthews, Color 10 News Beat.